Thank you, Bennett, for leading us in worship. That was been so good to be able to engage and to share communion with you as well. I hadn't actually been expecting that this evening, so that's been a real bonus to be here for that as well. Uh, I really love the opportunity to come back. Um, I think I've been here a couple of years in a row recently and uh, have enjoyed every opportunity to be here. The church I'm with is called Christ Church. We meet in the King's Hall normally, um, although there are about four or five Sundays in the year where because of other bookings, we don't get to use the King's Hall. So this morning it worked out very well for us that we didn't get to use the King's Hall because we had Holy Bible Club this previous week in Finnecke Primary School. And it was a great opportunity then, excuse, to move church to the primary school and try and encourage people who wouldn't normally go to church to come and meet with us. So that has been a good experience. It does actually mean a drop in numbers of our own folk Um, But we do get an increase in numbers of people who don't normally come along. So that was a real benefit for us. And of course, we shared in uh, Easter Sunday morning with you um, uh, over in the open air service at Barnett's Park this year. And that was lovely to meet with some of you there. And even some of you came back and had breakfast with us at the King's Hall. So thank you for uh, extending the invitation and continuing on the the fellowship. We do pray for the churches in our area, and we would include Windsor as one of those churches. And uh, we do believe that we're in a, a mission together. Um, David and I get invited along to one of the fraternals, there are a number of them. We get invited along to one of them that we're in together, and uh, it's great to be able to share that fellowship together. I've been asked to speak to you tonight from Daniel chapter 1. And if you want to turn, um, if, if this is a, a pew Bible, which I think it is, it's on page 883, Daniel chapter 1. And uh, we'll try and cover the content of the whole chapter, but we'll not read all of it. We'll read the first eight verses. Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. 
thermostat and a thermometer are two things which might seem to be very similar, but in actual fact they're quite different. The purpose of a thermostat is to control the temperature in a room or an environment. But what a thermometer does is it adjusts to assume the temperature in a room or an environment. And as Christians, as we try to figure out how on earth we live in this world, the challenge is to be more the thermostat and less the thermometer. And that was really the situation that Daniel and his friends found themselves in, in the reading that we've just had. They were privileged young men, either of royal descent or nobility, probably aged around 14 to 17. And they were born into the nobility of the nation which carried the name of God, the living and the true God, as its God. To be born into nobility in any nation is quite a privilege. But to be born into the nobility in Jerusalem carried a special responsibility. They were nobles in the city of David. They were nobles in the city where the living God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, had made his dwelling. And God had blessed this city. God had demonstrated his love for this city so many times. And he had promised these people that they would be the most influential city in all of the world if they were to remain faithful to him. They would be a light to the nations that were around them. And their light would shine in the areas of worship, true worship of the true and the living God, and justice, how they would treat one another, how they would love one another, care for one another, make provision for the outcasts. And God kept his promise. King Solomon inherited a nation from his father David that was at peace and was also in great prosperity. And its fame spread so far that the Queen of Sheba travelled 1,200 miles to come and see if the reports that she had heard of this rising nation were true. And what she experienced left her breathless. Here's what she said in 1 Kings chapter 10. I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not half was even told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. They were a light to the nations. And God had kept his promise. And his promise had brought blessing beyond their expectations. But whilst he had kept his promise to them, they were not so good at keeping their promises to him. And even before Solomon's reign was over, there was already difficulties developing in the nation. Solomon himself had grown cold in his own heart towards God. And all there were 20 kings of Judah over their 350 year period which led up to this story of Daniel. 
And of those 20 kings, only eight of them remained faithful to God. Some of them were so evil in God's sight that they made him extremely angry. But throughout those 350 years, God was very, very patient. And he did everything he could to grab their attention and to bring them back to him. Mostly he did this through sending prophets. For example, Isaiah enacted the oracle of walking around naked for three years to demonstrate how shameful the nation had become. Ezekiel's enacted oracle was to eat food that was only cooked on human dung in order to demonstrate how unholy the nation had become. And Jeremiah wore a yoke around his shoulders in order to prophesy that unless the people were to turn back to God, they would be taken into captivity. There were some flickers of hope in this 350-year period with the odd king here and there who were responsive to the words of the prophets. But eventually God's patience ran out with a rebellious people. And the prophecies that were made, even as early as the dedication of the temple, came to happen. And so we come to the year 597 BC, the year of Daniel and his friends. And it was a dark day for Judah. It was a darker day for Judah than 9-11 is for the states. Or any of the darkest days of the troubles in Ulster have been for us. 597 BC in Jerusalem. The city was ransacked. The temple was devastated. And the people were carried off into captivity. When Judah was defeated in battle. It was heartbreaking for the remnant who had remained faithful. Because there were a few. And these four young men probably were in the families that were part of the remnant. Godly young men who began this long walk in captivity to Babylon. We reckon the journey between Jerusalem and Babylon, although it's only 500 miles as the crow flies, we reckon it took about a thousand miles through the desert and following the path of the Euphrates River. So the journey would have taken somewhere in the region of three to four months. So that was three to four months of reflection. Life in Jerusalem before the fall of Jerusalem would have not been that much different in many ways to life in Belfast today. People working really hard, trying to find time to fit in visits to their families, getting through their to-do list, attending the doctor, getting married, just looking for things that they can do to enjoy themselves. Not really that much different to us today. And God was no longer worshipped in the hearts of most of his people, except for a few of them, this remnant who remained faithful. And I imagine that as this remnant walked from the city of David to the city of Babylon, they reflected on the difference between exodus and exile. The exodus whenever God had 
provided for them the most amazing country, land flowing with milk and honey, with his blessing, to the shame of exile. How on earth did that happen? How did they get from exodus to exile? I served an apprenticeship in the shipyard in Belfast, and for a six-week period, I was put with a shipwright. His name was Deke McGowan. And Deke was um, probably a man in his early 60s, and he was classed as the head shipwright. And he told me that he was the best shipwright that the shipyard had ever had, and he believed it. He told me that they gave him the most difficult jobs to do. And one of the jobs he had to do was to keep an eye on the um, oil rig, the tripod oil rig. Some of you might know the name of it. I I can't recall the name of it. Um, The first one that they launched. Do you know it, David? Sequest. That's it. As they were launching Sequest, they launched it as they would a ship. They built it on a slipway and they launched it into the water. And they were panicking about whether this would all work right or not. But Deke McGowan told me that when everybody else was panicking... He was nice and calm because he knew how to keep an eye on these things. And what they did, as they did with ships, they they would um, launch the ship and then they would release it from its, its moorings. And the idea was it would slip into the sea. Well, whenever they launched the, the, the oil rig, the Sequest, it looked as if there was no movement. It looked as if nothing was happening. And Deke told me, the, the manager, he called them the hats, were running around trying to figure out what to do. And he said, don't worry, it's moving. And he said, what I didn't tell them, Jackie, was I had put a wee chalk line that marked both the sequest and the ground. And once it started to move, I could see the difference, but they didn't know what to look for. Once it started to move, there was no stopping it. It was impossible to stop it. And that's what it was like for the nation of Israel. At first, there maybe didn't seem to be any noticeable slippage. But once it started to happen, it gathered speed, and it was virtually unstoppable. And I imagine that this remnant, as they were going from the city of David to the city of Babylon, were reflecting on these things and figuring out where these things had happened. Remembering what the prophets had said. Remembering the prayers, even at the dedication of the temple. And remembering that God had stayed faithful to them, but they had not remained faithful to him. They had three to four months to reflect and three to four months to anticipate what life might be like in Babylon. Psalm 137 gives us an insight into how they felt. Beside the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? And so these four young men find themselves arriving in a strange and a pagan land. And they also find themselves being selected to be trained in the Babylonian customs and the culture because they were nobility, because they were flawless, because they were fit and healthy, because they were handsome and intelligent. 
But they also had another quality that was of no interest to the Babylonians. They were godly young men. And so they entered this three-year training program, call it a, a university course, where they received the best of training that the world had to offer by the best assembled faculty that the world had to offer. And the aim was to develop in these young men the skills and qualities that Nebuchadnezzar wanted for the advancement of his empire. They were entered into a brainwashing system as well in order to break them free from the culture that they'd come from. This included changing their names. And we read that in the passage. Daniel, which means God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar to mean Baal, protect the king. Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious, was changed to Shadrach, meaning command of Aku, and Aku being a Babylonian god. Mishael means what, who is what God is. He was changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is. And Azariah, meaning Yahweh has helped, had his name changed to Abednego, to servant of Nebo. Now this wasn't just like a French teacher giving everyone in the classroom a French name, uh, like a role play situation. The purpose of these names was to untie these young men from their identities as children of Israel. It was a crucial part of the strategy of trying to redefine who they were. And up to this point, and including this point, these young men submitted to their circumstances. But soon they hit a clash of conscience when they were offered the food from the king's table. This food and drink from the king's table had been offered to idols. And some of the food and drink was forbidden by the law of the Lord for Jews to eat. And so, at this first point of facing a clash of conscience, Daniel, aged somewhere between 14 and 17, takes a stand in a pagan land against the most oppressive nation in the world, To stand up for the true and the living God. This is like David facing Goliath. And this started in Daniel's heart. He resolved in his heart not to sin. He understood that the root of the problem that his forefathers had was sin of the heart. And that sin of the heart being false worship in particular. The heart is where we have our relationship with God. And God's complaint against his people was that they were worshipping him with their lips, but that their hearts had grown far from him. But not Daniel. Daniel was a true worshipper of the true and the living God. And so when he's confronted with this requirement to engage in what is a religious ritual, to a false god, the gods of the Babylonians, Daniel takes his stand. I think that we work hard as Christians in Northern Ireland to try and figure out how we engage with the culture. 
how we figure out how we be part of this culture, how we be in this world without being of this world. And no matter how well and eager we are able to engage in the culture around us, there will come times when we're not able to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to what we're exposed to. It's important, like Daniel and his friends, that we choose those battles carefully. Daniel and his friends accepted the teachings that they had been given, some of which would have involved being taught the arts of magic. They accepted the names they were given, but they drew the line when it became an act of worship. It wouldn't have been an easy thing for them to do. They were uh, an ethnic minority. They were slaves. They had no rights. And so it's really quite bold of them to take this stand. But we can see, as we read further on into Daniel, that the stand they take in this first chapter prepares them for even tougher challenges as the book develops. These young men had the attitude that they would not worship falsely. And that is the theme that runs through Daniel. They were prepared to die rather than to be unfaithful to God. So they offered to eat a different diet than the one that they were offered. And at first, their, steward, their chief steward refuses because he is fearful of Nebuchadnezzar. But it tells us in the passage that God had made his deputy favourable towards these four friends. And he agrees to this ten day trial of a diet. The diet goes well. These four young men become stronger than those who are in the academy with them, who are eating from the king's table. And after the ten day test, the steward is so impressed that he allows them to continue with that diet throughout the rest of their training. God has clearly blessed them, and this would have been such an encouragement to them. So this is how the book of Daniel starts out. It starts out with the utter despair of a nation in exile. Then there's a little glimmer of hope for these four guys when they find favor with a Babylonian eunuch. And they realize that God is with them in Babylon, even in something as small as the diet and that test. Well, they don't just grow physically in, in terms of their diet. They become the most intelligent by far in the group that they're being trained with. And not only that, it tells us that they excel even beyond the existing wise men and advisors and enchanters in the nation. And so they find themselves drawn into the highest echelons of public service in the Babylonian Empire. And just like Joseph, hundreds of years before, God was placing them in key positions in order to protect his mission, the plans that he had for blessing every nation in the world. The lessons these young men experience in Daniel chapter 1 are the life-changing experiences that help them stay faithful to God no matter what lies ahead for them. I'm sure some of you who come from my era will have this record, this Keith Green record, No Compromise. But the picture on the front of it is taken from this story of the book of Daniel. 
He shows in this one of the four friends refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar as he passes by. And though everyone else around him is bowing down, probably just doing it because it gets it done and gets them out of trouble, these four young men throughout this book take a stand of refusing to worship falsely. The chapter ends, Daniel chapter 1. Maybe if you just look at it at the last verse. Daniel chapter 1, verse 21. And Daniel remained there in the king's service until the first year of King Cyrus's reign. It's not an insignificant comment because you'll find the first year of King Cyrus's reign popping up in two or three other places around this time. It's a significant time because it signifies the end of the exile. And Daniel remained in the position of authority in that nation right from the exile right through to the point of the people being released to be sent back home again. We believe that when the wise men came to seek Jesus, that they came seeking him because of the received wisdom they had had handed down from the time that Daniel and his friends spent in Babylon. What God was doing was not just protecting the remnant, but he was also preparing to bless the whole world with Jesus. And so in our worship tonight, Bennett has been helping us focus on the concept of God's faithfulness to us and our call to be faithful to him. And that's what it is to be in the world and not of it. To try and charter that difficult course, which could be so different for one person than it is for another. To figure out what are we going to accept and what are we going to take a stand against. And to try and help and support each other as we do that. One of the students from Christchurch who went to London to study for her first year in a law degree this year got called in to see her tutor and he insisted that she forget about any idea of scripture union if she wanted to progress in her studies. That is the pressure that some of our young people face not just in university, in school, in workplace. It's the pressure that all of us face as we go through life. And it's a challenge for us as believers to figure out how we prepare our young people and ourselves to face these challenges. Here's how Jesus prayed about his disciples as he was leaving. John 17, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them, so they can be made holy by your truth. I think our challenge as churches, as believers, is to understand the importance of what being in the world is about. It's actually not about keeping us ourselves safe in the world, but it's about being God's instruments 
for doing good in this world. I heard the story of a, a girl who was attending a first aid class. And she, came, she wasn't really that engaged with the class. She found it quite boring. And then one day when she came to the class, she was very excited. And she said, I'm so excited because what I have learned here became useful yesterday. She said, I came across an accident. And it was awful. It was carnage. It was just terrible. She said, but I put into practice something that I learned here. I felt faint, so I sat down and I put my head between my legs and I did okay. She missed the point of what her first aid classes were about. It wasn't about helping her. It was about her helping others. And sometimes we miss this point of being in the world but not of it by trying to protect ourselves or protect our young people. Our challenge is to release ourselves and our young people to bring God's grace and mercy into this world. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll hand back to Bennett. Father, it's a huge challenge for us to remain faithful to you with the pressures that bear down on us. And sometimes we might even find that we don't know which way to turn and we don't know which decision to make. And we may even be sitting here feeling guilty right now for some wrong decisions we have made or something that we haven't done that we maybe could have done. We thank you that in Jesus there is forgiveness. We thank you that you're a a compassionate God, slow to anger and swift to bless. And so first of all, we pray that any of us sitting here this evening feeling guilty as believers might find that guilt being lifted and removed when we remember the death of Jesus on the cross and how he died to save our sins. But we do pray, Father, that you would equip us, help us to stay close to you, help us in our hearts to love you and to express that love no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And Father, we pray particularly for brothers and sisters all around the world facing persecution, facing circumstances that would frighten the life out of us. And we pray for your grace and your mercy to be poured out on them. And we pray that Jesus would be exalted because of their witness. We pray the same for ourselves, that in this city of Belfast, there would be people who would come to know you as Lord and Saviour through the witness of your children in this city. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.